0: So I want, to show you, I want to show you an image. We're going to put this image up, something very ordinary. Take a look, take a look. That's right, sand. Just take a look, it's just sand. It's very ordinary, it's all over the place when you go to the beach. But when you put this stuff under a microscope, you know what it looks like? I didn't know, I googled this, and then Wired Magazine had an article. That article was titled this with these images. Sand looks unbelievably cool under a microscope. So that supposedly, unless they're lying to us, that's what sand looks like under a microscope. So what looks really ordinary on the outside really comes to life really rich in color when you put it under a microscope and you look really closely. Kind of like when you peel back the veil of being zoomed out and you can kind of actually see the way things really are. This is what you get. It's not what you might have expected And I think this right here, this like silly little introduction hook to get you in to this sermon, I think actually this sand and microscope illustration can be the kind of experience we can have with what might be a a story that you and I have heard over and over uh, through the years. But I think maybe if we put it under the microscope or evaluate really what's being peeled back, you know, looking in, uh, you know, behind the scenes I think we're going to see something maybe we haven't seen before. Maybe it was just sitting there the whole time, but we didn't we didn't notice. And I think if you, if we if we see it together, it's going to have some application for your life right where you are. So let's take a look. We're going to jump in to the next part of our journey in the Gospel of Mark. So we're jumping into chapter nine. So we finally did it. We have reached halfway. It only took us twenty six sermons. We did it. We are now halfway. Don't worry, it'll be like four more sermons to get through chapter 9. But we have reached halfway. And here in chapter 9, we're right on the heels uh, in the aftermath of uh, Peter declaring Jesus as Messiah. And if you remember, then Peter said, no, you, you're, after Jesus explains that you know I'm going to have to go die, Peter then takes Jesus aside and says, no, you don't understand. That's not what has to happen. Then Jesus takes Peter aside and says, No, this is what ha- has to happen. He rebukes Peter. And so there's all these questions, this swirling around of what it means to be Messiah. There's the cross involved, there's death. It looks like the king's going to be killed. That doesn't usually, it's not usually how the life of a king goes when you're going to start your royal, you know, your reign. So there's just a lot, there's a lot going on about Messiah, people seeing him. And then, right after all of this swirling of information in that part part of the story, we get Jesus taking three of his disciples up on a mountain. That's where we pick up. Mark chapter 9, we pick up with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and it covered them And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah has come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Mm. Many of us have heard this story, Jesus going up on a mountain, looking really bright, very white, and Peter wanting to stay put, put up some tents, take up residence on the mountain, and then ultimately this vision goes away and they have to come down off the mountain. So there's a lot going on in the story. We have Jesus shining bright. We have Moses. We have Elijah. We have Peter not fully understanding. And we have this talk again of the Messiah having to suffer. Now, in all of it, in all the pieces of the story, I don't want us to miss the big picture. This is fundamentally a story about Revelation. Take a look. I want to summarize it this way. So take a look at this slide here. This is a story of Revelation of eyes being opened. And this is what I want us to get. Throughout the gospel, Mark wants the reader, that would be me and you today, to pay attention to who does see and who does not see Jesus clearly. So throughout the gospel, Mark has been revealing certain things about Eyesight. That is, some people see Jesus for who he is, and some people they just don't don't get him at all. Now, up to this point, this is really a metaphor, really an extended metaphor. It's a literary device. Because what we have is we have people actually seeing Jesus, but they don't understand him, although others do understand. So I want us to get this. That at this point we have we have a literary device. All the way through the gospel to this point, where some people are seeing him in the flesh, some even touching him, but some of those people got no clue what's going on, and others understand at some of the deepest levels. So if I had to just take that, let me just summarize it to get us to, to a review of where we've been. So here's what I'd like to say. Those who do see Jesus come to him with humble faith on his terms. Those who cannot see Jesus, they're always trying to put him in a box, always trying to put him in a box. And when Jesus doesn't fit in the box they bring to him, they usually don't understand him. They can't see him. So just, just take, I want to take a, just a quick journey from, through the gospel and see these two play out. So first, take a look at who, who can see Jesus. The, these who see Jesus are all the people you wouldn't expect. A man with leprosy in chapter 1. In chapter 2, a group of men carrying a paralyzed friend. In chapter 5, we see a man healed of demon possession. He sees Jesus clearly. Uh, In chapter 5, later on, an unclean woman with chronic bleeding. Someone no one else wants to touch or be around. She sees Jesus clearly. A non-Jewish woman living outside of Judea. In chapter 7, we see she sees Jesus clearly. In chapter 8, we see a deaf and mute man in a non-Jewish region. He sees Jesus. And then in, later in chapter 8, or right there in chapter 8 as well, we see a blind man in a small town. Really a nobody. He sees Jesus clearly. These are all the people that are on the margins of society. People that other people don't want to, aren't paying attention to and really don't care about. But along the way, Mark continues to highlight as a literary device that as other people misunderstand Jesus, the people you would least expect they see him clearly. And that's something. That really is something. So, what about all those people that don't see Jesus clearly? You would expect the people who went to seminary, that have all the religious degrees, those that are doing church, they're volunteering, they're singing on stage, they're pre- preaching the message. You'd expect that all of those people should get Jesus, right? Take a look. Take a look at where we've been. Those who cannot see Jesus up to this point, the teachers of the law, who said Jesus was blaspheming. Ah, the Pharisees who rebuked Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees who said that he acted unlawfully on the Sabbath. Jesus' own family who said he was out of his mind. The teachers of the law who said he was possessed by Satan. And then Peter himself, we just saw this in chapter 8, who rebuked him for predicting his death. his death. Isn't that something? The very people that you would expect to be at the center of understanding Jesus... They missed him all along the way. And so there you have Jesus walking, walking. And Mark, the writer, is, is with this extended metaphor helping us, the readers, notice that the people seeing Jesus are the ones you and I would least expect. They're on the outside. Now, you take all of that, those eight chapters, chapters one through eight, you're bringing that extended metaphor of people understanding that it's seeing, and you're going to bring it now up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. What's important for us as readers is to understand we're about to leave the world of an extended metaphor, and we're about to move into a literal vision. This is how I want to say that. The Mount of Transfiguration is the most literal revelation of who Jesus is up to this point, and it has two dimensions. we got two dimensions in play, and these are not metaphors, We have a physical, a physical that is something that they can see. So I'm going to call that a visual dimension. And then there is something happening audibly. There's something in the audible dimension. They both are seeing, literally seeing Jesus transform in front of them, and then they are hearing something different. They have this voice from the Father. So I kind of want to just take those two very quickly and just notice both of those. I think we need to put those in front of us here. So visually, you have Jesus now becoming really white, like, like blazing light, like sunshine, like almost hard to look at him. And he's now standing here with Moses and Elijah, which tells us that the story that Jesus is writing has something to do about the Old Testament. These major figures, the prophets and the law, we know that Jesus is fulfilling both of those, and that's why these two figures stand with him, talking But here you have Jesus shining bright. And here's what's going on there. I want you to notice what one scholar says here. I want you to notice, is it just that Jesus is God in flesh? It could be. But I think Mark is trying to get us, the readers, to see something else about Jesus, particularly in light of the fact that they've just declared in in the previous chapter that he's Messiah. And there's been all this tension about if he really is or not. Take a look at what this one scholar says about this shining Jesus. This is a sign of Jesus being entirely caught up with, bathed in the love, power, and kingdom of God so that it transforms his whole being with light and the way that music transforms words that are sung. This is the sign that Jesus is not just indulging in fantasies about God's kingdom, but that he is speaking and doing the truth. It's the sign that he is indeed the true prophet the true messiah. It's very important at this point in the story because Mark has just recorded in chapter 8 the most that has been recorded up to this point in his gospel about Jesus being messiah and along the way his disciples those closest to him have a problem with his description. They're not sure if he's got it right. And so we roll right into chapter 9 and we see Jesus shining which really is a visual declaration that Jesus is indeed the Messiah who is caught up in this kingdom of love. And now it is visually showing in his body, on his clothes. He is Messiah. So we really need to keep that in front of us. So although he will suffer and die, ah, that doesn't take away the fact he's Messiah. So they're seeing this visually. The other thing that's happening is audibly something's happening. The Father is actually saying something with language that can be heard. And I just want to remind us what was said. Take a look. A voice came from the cloud. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. So that audible voice that they can hear says something, says something about who Jesus is. He's the Son. There's no question. There's no question. Yes, he's going to suffer and die, but he's coming back to life. All of that teaches us something about the kingdom. But there is one big point in both of those, the visual and the audible, that we just might miss if we don't put it under a microscope. You see... When you take all of that into account, and we could dig a little further into the Old Testament and why uh, Moses and Elijah, why why they're front and center, why Jesus has to suffer and die, what does it mean that Elijah still has to come? What does all that mean? But if we just dig there, we're going to miss this one really big thing that's sitting right in front of us. And that is that when you peel back the veil to see reality as it really is, you know who's sitting at the center? Jesus. Jesus. Let me say it it just concisely this way. Both dimensions of the revelation are about Jesus, which means Jesus sits at the center of ultimate reality. When you put reality under the microscope to see what's really there, kind of like you do with sand, like let me put some sand under the microscope and see what it really looks like. When you put reality under the microscope to say what's really going on, you know who you see? You see Jesus. That's who you see. When the veil's pulled back to see what's really going on, and Jesus shows up. Jesus sits at the center of ultimate reality. Now, I want to just take that and maybe put it in some, maybe in a modern context. So, take a look. I just got a little bit of a longer, a longer uh, explanation, but I think maybe it starts to drive to something that applies to us. When we pull back the veil and discover the way things really are, we don't find a magic political formula that will fix the world, nor magical medicine to cure all diseases, nor an economic theory to ensure prosperity. What we find is a person, Jesus. This is very important for us because I think we we tend to try to find the secret to life. I don't know if you remember back in the early two thousands, there really, there was actually a book called The Secret, and it was all about positive thinking. And if you like have if your thinking is, is positive enough, you can make anything true. But that's just that's just another version of trying to find out how to have the good life. And so, throughout history, people are always trying to find out how to have the good life, how to be a good person. And we think that if we go to school long enough or read the latest book or listen to the latest podcast or we find the right friend or or we we discover the right medicine if we could just cure maybe cancer or maybe if we could figure out how to destroy Alzheimer's, maybe a vaccine, if we could just figure out how to stop heart attacks, if we could just figure out how to, to, to for people to borrow money without it being oppressive. You know, just figure it all. If we could just get rid of war, if we could just control all the guns. I'm just walking through almost now. I'm just gonna just move into the 2020 political. Season, I'll just go through all, the whole list. How's that sound? Okay, of all the things that are going to fix the world. But we have this idea that if we'll just find the right, the right thing, the right formula, we're going to get it all fixed. And what you find at the Mount Transfiguration is that when you pull back reality, when you put it under the microscope, what you find is not a medicine or, or some political party or government, what you find is a person because fundamentally reality is tied into the triune God who created us. We were created out of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are fundamentally persons. And so to find the good life, to figure out how to be happy, you got to go get connected to the right relationship, the right person. That's why you have Jesus at the center. Now, if I take this, if I take this kind of out of the Gospel of Mark, and I just say, does this actually start to work out in other places in the Bible? Like, do other people who have sat long with Jesus, did they find this same thing true? Well, I'm just going to pick the Apostle Paul, because you can cherry-pick him well, e- yeah, easy enough, and, and he can make my point. In one of his letters, he is dealing with some of the things we deal with. He's dealing with a church where people are trying to find the right philosophy or the right way of life and then make everyone else follow it. And this is a challenge for this church because these are early Christians, and he has something to say to them. And so I find that this formula, this, this truth, really, that we're seeing in Mark, that when you just peel back reality, put it under the microscope, you need to get Jesus. I find that Paul's doing that same thing in this letter to the Colossians. Take a look. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says this to them. He's warning them. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So you be very careful. Be, be, very careful you're not trying to find the secret to reality. Be very careful you're not trying to find the secret away from Jesus. Which is why when he sets up the letter, you know what he does? He peels back the way things really are, and when he does it, he does exactly what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see Jesus shining really bright. Take a look at what he does in chapter 1. This is what he says. This is him peeling back the veil. The Son, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together all things hold together in Jesus so you want to know how to get your life right you get it you get your life next to Jesus that's how you that's how you fix your life Now, again, I understand that that's really easy to say from stage, but when you start dealing with trauma, when you start dealing with abuse, when you start dealing with disease, all of that gets really complicated, I understand. But in general, in general, when you peel back reality for what it really is, you're going to find Jesus. You're not going to find a political party, a medicine, an economic theory. You're not going to find the right college degree or the right university. You're going to find Jesus as ultimate reality, because out of him, everything else came. So if you want to have everything come back together, you get to him. So that's what I'm seeing in this this story of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing under the microscope when I look at this passage of Scripture. Is there more there? Absolutely. But my, if we just dig in all these other different places, we're going to miss the fact that when it was the reality was peeled back, the veil was... Was, was, was pulled so that we could see behind the scenes, both the visual and the audible drew us to Jesus. So, what in the world does that have to do with your life? How does that affect your life right where you are? So what I want to do is I want to kind of revisit, it's not kind of, we are going to revisit, some application we had when we were studying Psalm 1. When we were studying Psalm 1, we said, if you want to grow, if you want to produce fruit, you have to be planted in the right relationship. And we took that, and we began to explore that with some images. I want to do that again, because I don't think I have any better images than these. So, no, you, no, no, no reason not to do some recycling, right? We're green here. Okay. Did you like that? Maybe you didn't. Okay. Never mind. Okay. All right. Let's just move on. Let's take a look. Here's the question I want to ask in application. Are you moving toward Jesus or away from him? Are you moving toward him or away from him? I hope you're hearing in this question. This is a question, this is a dynamic question. It's a question of movement. Sometimes we think of our relationship with Jesus as static. Like if you get the right information, you you, you take the test, regurgitate what you heard, say you believe it, you'll get saved. And all of a sudden now we're saved. It's almost like this static, this static position in the universe. I am saved. No relationship works that way. My relationship with my wife, my kids, you, it is never static. It's always in movement. And that's the same way with Jesus. And so I want to just kind of consider then... If we're talking about Jesus at the center of reality, I kind of want to talk about then, what does that look like for your movement with Jesus, away or or towards? Let's put some images up now. We're going to start with this first one. So for some people, they are not in relationship with Jesus. Like they're outside. The arrow here represents being outside a relationship with Jesus. They do not know him. And not only do they not know him, they're running as far away from him as they can. Because they think he's oppressive, or they think that he's mean, or he's too black and white, he's too religious, he's too moral. There are all kinds of reasons that we run from Jesus. People would run from him. So there are people that are, they don't know him, and they're running as far away from him as they can. And they're going to come up with lots of arguments on why you should never be in a relationship with him. Now, on the other side, you do have people, let's go to this next one, you do have people that are not in relationship with Jesus, but they're very curious about him. And they want to know more about it. And so they're being invited in to learn. They're not yet in relationship, but they really are curious. They might have some Buddhism, Hinduism, some nothingism, whatever that might be. They may have it all mixed up, but they're really curious about this Jesus. And so they're moving towards him. I think of people like, I don't know if you remember in the Gospels, there was the story of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. For some of you, a song is now emerging for you, right? Yes, yes. But there's this, this Zacchaeus. He's not in relationship with Jesus, but he's curious. And what does he do? He climbs that sycamore tree, right? And eventually, he comes right into relationship with Jesus. You see, these are, there are people like this. Now, I know in a crowd like this, some of you might be right there. Like, I kind of am curious about this Jesus. I mean, I'm here in church. And just because you're in a church building doesn't mean that you are either in or you're out. That just means that your body is in a church building, okay? Just want to be clear. That's what that means. But where your heart is, that could be in different places. So maybe, maybe this could be you. You're just curious about him. Now, take a look. Now, let's, let's get to people that are in relationship with Jesus. So some of us are in relationship with Jesus, and we're moving towards him. We're moving towards him. And that means we're saved, right? Like, so the, the fact that the arrow's in the circle means you're saved. But when you're saved, there's a lot of movement in that relationship. And some of you are thirsting you want more of Jesus right where you are and so you're moving towards him and you know you're moving towards him like you know when you're like pursuing someone right like you teenage you teenage young men you know when you're pursuing someone you know what that what that feels like looks like you you people been married like 50 years you know you got some romance still left this still can get hot i get it not really i'm 17 years married but i'm just going to assume i'm just going to assume it can still get hot right I hope it's okay that a preacher can say that. I have a lot of biblical foundation in the Song of Songs to say what I just said. Okay? So if you're uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable with the Bible. Let's continue. <laughs> but I'm just saying it. You might be married 50 years, but you still know what it feels like to move towards your spouse. You get that. And I'm just saying that that's what it looks like, it feels like with Jesus. But here's the one that might start to get uncomfortable you're saved but you're not doing much to move towards Jesus. You're actually moving away from him. You know what that also feels like. You know something's off in the relationship. You know you really don't care. You know you're supposed to come to church, so you come to church, but really you really don't have much concern for the relationship and you're moving away from him. And usually this isn't like a sprint. This is usually a slow, gradual decline. It's a slow disintegration. This is usually what that looks like and what it feels like. It's how marriages get 20 years down the road and you say, I don't even know the person I'm married to anymore. How'd that happen? It's kind of like that where you're just moving away from them. Okay? So I just want you to think about this. Like, which one would apply to you? Okay? Like, which one would apply? And this is dynamic. Okay? I want us to understand if you are in relationship with Jesus but you're moving away from him, it doesn't mean that you're, like, going to hell. It means recognize that your relationship isn't strong right now, that there's a lack of desire. I just want you to think about this. Because you're in one of these. There is no relationship with just a dot. Okay, I didn't put an image up here where there was just a dot. And you're just there. That's not how relationships work. It's not how God works. He's the one that made us. So what do you think about it? You're one of these. Like there's no other option here. All right. So let's take this and let's move it into a next step. This is like something you can do today and you can do it for the rest of the week. Make a choice each day. And I'm not, like, that's not like every choice in your day. I mean, literally make one choice that moves you towards Jesus. Make a choice that moves you towards Jesus. Okay? All right, so let me, let me give you a practical example of what that might look like. And so I was, I was convicted of this. So sometimes these next steps emerge out of my own life as I'm preparing. Uh, this week you know that there were a lot of problems between the United States and Iran. Everyone aware of this? Okay, something happened in the Middle East, and then there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of concern of what that was going to look like. And man, if you're a news junkie, that was, this was like red meat this week. I mean, every day, something a little new. There was some drama, potential for war. Like, golly, all of it was in the making. It was like a death, violence. I mean, it was all there. And I'm just going to tell you, I woke up late a few times this week like right up against when the kids have to wake up. And usually I do my Bible reading before the kids wake up with my coffee. Well, I'm waking up right against that. Now, usually I can finagle and still get some reading in uh, and if, if I'm waking up close to wake-up time for the kids. But this week I woke up a little tired, so I'm making my coffee. And rather than put my mind immediately into some Scripture not because Scripture's magical, because I'm trying to form myself in a particular way. That's why I would do that. What I do is I turn on the news immediately, and I'm looking at what's happening, what happened overnight. And I went a few days where I was just consumed every free minute with listening to the news. And I found my spirit dry by Thursday. And I'm all disheveled. And I'm trying to figure out, what is this all about? I'm the preacher. Like, I'm the closest person to God in town. Like, come on. Surely I should be feeling something. Can I take a side note? If you're new with us and you don't understand or like sarcasm, this may not be. May not be the church for you. Let's continue. Just side note in case we had any social misunderstanding there. Okay? All right. But I'm trying to understand what is happening. And I'm just reflecting and I'm realizing I have this week put my mind, I have focused my attention more on the events of the Middle East than I have with what Jesus might be doing in ordinary life in my home, my town, our church. And that really got to me. And so you know what I did? I decided to take this next step and kind of get it down into, you know, my life. And I decided that in my free moments on Thursday and Friday, I would not listen to the news. And I kind of let the world keep running without me. And it did, just so you know. It did. Everything kept going. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, that was, that, like, if I came up here and I said that your next step needs to be stop listening to the news. I have found that to be spiritual. Well, that, wouldn't make, that may not apply to you. That may not make much sense. But where I found myself this week as I was in relationship with Jesus is that I need to turn off the news. That's what it looked like for me. Some of you might read your Bible every day and you're really proud of that, like too proud of that. Your next step might be to let go of your Bible reading for a day and just sit with Jesus and let go of a little bit of that pride. Now, I know a preacher just said, don't read your Bible, but be careful. Remember, your next step, moving closer to Jesus, is part of your relationship. And so if your Bible reading has become part of your arrogance, well, then you need to let go, and that might be your choice. What I want us to get to here in all of these examples is whatever it looks like for you, do one thing. Don't like try to do everything in the world. Just do one thing and let that move you closer to Jesus. And his grace, which you will need and I need, will come alongside and he will help us. Because we can't do any of it without His grace and the Holy Spirit helping us. So make a choice that will move you towards Jesus. And just do one thing each day. And just watch what happens. Just watch what happens. All right? All right, let me pray for this. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for this story. Thanks for Mark being really smart, and not just inspired, but smart to put together this gospel this way. I pray Holy Spirit that you're just going to help us and bring to mind those choices, just ordinary choices that will help us move us to Jesus. And you're going to help us with that. And in that we're going to look more like him, we're going to have salvation, we're going to be redeemed, justified, all that stuff. And it's just going to it's just going to help us as we move closer to your son. So help us in that way. We sure are going to need it. And I just ask that if we need other people in our lives to be helping us, which we usually do, put the right people in our life this week to to move us in that direction. Convict us where we need convicted and then encourage us where we need encouraged. I pray all that in the name of the Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God in flesh, now exalted, all of that. His name is Jesus the Christ, we pray. And together we sing. Amen.